Welcome to the Hex Knight Podcast. I'm David. And I'm Ivan. And today we're going to have a talk about people who aren't human. Or demi-humans, as they sometimes get called. So, Dave, if I say demi-human to you, what kind of critter pops into your mind? Oh, the classics, man. From, like, Lord of the Rings and old first edition Dungeons and Dragons. You got the elves, the dwarves, orcs, gnomes, goblins, and their associated allies and variations on those uh, types of types of guys, different heights, skin colors, ears and nose. And I mean, <laughs> it goes back to the old uh, ages of, of like uh, European folklore. Mm-hmm. Like pointy hats and big boots and all that fun stuff. We would like to point out to the uh, Tolkien estate, if they're listening in, that we are not saying the H word, so you can please not sue us. <laughs> <laughs> we may say halfling, but we're not saying the other H word. <laughs> all the other guys have orcs too, so sue them first. But yeah, yeah. kind of right. I think, um, I mean, the term itself, I think, is dates back to like, I don't know, like, advanced Dungeons and Dragons or something. But it always had that meaning of, like, humanoids, but, like, kind of replacement humans. It's like Star Trek aliens, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. they're kind of like a evolutionary variants that came out of the weirdness uh, of the world and, we'll say, the influence of magic in, a, in the fantasy setting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or sometimes, you know, like the creations of one of the gods. or I mean... I, actually, I wonder, like, how, how many games really, like, tell you where these dudes all came from? Because I feel like that's something games should definitely do more. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a Swedish role-playing game which had, uh, like, made up, like, fake Latin um, terminology for all the fantasy creatures. And they all kind of made sense. Like, they were real Latin, you know, similar to, like, how, like, wolves and dogs and cats all have Latin names. Uh, yeah. Which is really cool. It gave it those, like, weird... Uh, like scientific fantasy vibe, which was really cool. So more games should definitely do that. Um, but yeah, I think like the whole like pantheon of like humanoid characters that all have, like I think what they have in common is that they're all intelligent, right? Like they have close to human levels of intelligence. Um, I know like intelligence and non-human characters is kind of like an abstract thing because it's hard to, like how, what does a lizard man think about? <laughs> Uh, but they all have, like, you know, like, they're sapient. They have some level of, like, culture and civilization from the perspective of humans. Um, they're generally, like, have two arms, two legs, maybe a tail, maybe some wings or cat ears. But they're sort of, like, reasonably, like, physically equivalent to people. Like, I think, um, you know, like, we wouldn't consider, like, a griffin to be a demi-human. Right. You know. Tool making, uh, use of language. Yeah, sort of like societies. Yeah, you can kind of look at like what's the first things you can invent in a civilization on the computer, right? Like, just pick those. <laughs> Do they have sure. uh, the wheel and the alphabet? In that case, they they go in the book. Yeah, uh, that's basic thing. I think uh, thinking about like the alphabet, they never really delve into like. Well, I mean, they like uh, written at different written alphabets. And I guess that that would be a pretty deep uh, rabbit hole to 
<laughs> yeah, that's something like you've heard. Um, Harn actually does. It has like specific. Well, it cheats a little bit because there's only like three because it takes place on like a small island. Uh, but it goes into detail with like what the written forms look like and like what each thing uses. But I think at that point you're like you definitely got to be like ready to embrace the full nerd. <laughs> you know, because then it's a question of like. Um, Oh, that could be cool though. Like, if you find like some written war plans, but they're written in Orcish, like, can you read that? Like, where did you learn that? You know, do you have? <laughs> so it's a way of like adding um, some detail to your world. But I think you gotta like, you gotta have a group that's into that. Yeah, someone who's read the Sumerian. Yeah, <laughs> full on. Like, okay, but which kind of Elvish is this written in? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> But again, like if that's what you're sitting down to play, then you know, presumably that's what you're there for. Like someday we'll talk about like coaching games and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, like I think these, the role these creatures play in a campaign, I think is kind of like one of two roles, right? They're either like interesting things you can choose to play, or they're interesting things you can like go stick with a sword. Like that's well, how they, it works out, right? Generally, yeah, yeah. Or, or they create colorful NPCs. Or, as we, you know, we've talked about NPCs before, so ideally there's a third. I mean, I guess they're all technically NPCs either way. Mm. Uh, but I think a lot of times when we're talking about playable characters, we're generally talking about races or species that are pretty much like funny humans anyway. Like, in a lot of settings, elves are just like kind of refined like humans. You know, halflings are, you know, short and they eat a lot, or maybe they steal a lot, depending. Uh, I think Dark Sun had, like, cannibal halflings, but, you know, like, they're all fundamentally just, like, humans, but dot, 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 right? Yeah. Yep. Like, we don't tend to get, like, super, super carried away with them. Um, and the non-playable demi-humans tend to kind of cluster around, like, potential enemy types. We got our orcs and goblins and hobgoblins and all of these that are all sort of interchangeable, like, ugly banded dudes that we go fight. Or yeah, they the, tend to be not relatable. Like, yeah, personal. they're not relatable, and a lot of times they are almost, like, put like portrayed in a way that's, like, it makes it hard to understand, like, how they can even, like, function. Like, if they're all, like, super, like, barbaric and fight all the time, how do they get these armies that we have to go fight all the time? You know? For sure. <laughs> Uh, so I think there's, like, some oversimplification of it. Or, like, lizard men always portrayed as being just, like, you know, ignorant cave people who live in swamps. Uh, mm. You know, and I think those become, like, kind of um, limiting, maybe? Like, is that all, like, an orc can be? Like, wouldn't it be more interesting if orcs were, like... Like, they can still be, like, your um, dangerous invaders. Like, a lot of times they get used as sort of an analogy for, like, the like the Mongol armies or something, Right. Right. Uh, but historically, like, the Mongol culture was, like, super advanced and complicated, uh, even though it was also, you know, like, a ruthless and cruel and barbaric. So right. I, I think you can, like, make these creatures, like, interesting uh, without, like, escaping the fact that often they're in the game to provide, like, enemies to fight. You know, mm. like, wouldn't it be better if we had, like, interesting enemies? Yeah, giving them complex, multi-dimensional motivations that right. aren't just kill players. and destroy. Yeah, and then the players can relate to it. You know, like, if you know that orcs are, let's say in your world, orcs are like, they have a, like, intense warrior code of showing bravery. Well, what happens if one of the players wants to, like, tempt them into an ambush, right? 
Hmm. So now you're like rewarding the players for paying attention to all the jibber jabber you're doing when you're dumping exposition on them. <laughs> you know, like the world becomes a little more alive. That's kind of like all the stuff we talk about, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think like avoiding the the stereotype of it. And honestly, like a lot of times, it's not even like gonna be that difficult. Like most RPGs, most of these creatures don't really get like you know, huge books written about them. Like, you get, like, the monster list in the book, and each creature has, like, you know, a paragraph or two discussing them. So it's not like you have to, like, go change anything. You basically just have to, like, add the stuff they didn't put in. I think it would be interesting to uh, consider kind of environmental influences. Mm-hmm, yeah. So, like, like if... If they live in, in like a really barren landscape, they might be raiding to survive. Like they they have no way to to create their own food, sure. or it's generally scarce. And they right, see right. all these other villages like further south or north, basically in a more kind of habitable region. Mm-hmm. So they have to raid them. That that becomes kind of like their standard mode of operation, sure. their solution sure. to the the problem of survival and feeding themselves. Or when they build an army, it's like, you know, like um, like Dark Age migrations, where you have these, like, whole culture groups who were moving across Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, or, like, what if, like, your hobgoblin empire, um, you, like, drawn up your world map, and you got all these mountains, you put the hobgoblins there, and then you realize at some point you wrote down that these mountains are also full of, like, high-quality iron. Well, now your hobgoblins probably have, like, really good weapons, right? Sure. So, and they're set on protecting their resources that, mm-hmm. let's say, the, the humans have found out about these veins of iron, and they want to gain access, of course. You have that conflict built up, like, right away. Yeah, now you have a conflict that has, like, a tangible thing in the world, and it's easy <laughs> to... Um, and it doesn't necessarily... Like, you know, sometimes... We've talked before about, like, uh, moral complexity versus kind of simple, like, good and evil. Um, right. But I think like that something like that could be used either way. Like if you want the world to be kind of more realistic, and the hobgoblins are not specifically like evil and brutal, but they still have a reason for defending their their turf. Or you can say that they're still hobgoblins. They're still you know militant like fantasy fascists, right. but they also have a like valid claim to this land. You know, like mm-hmm. now makes it. Yeah, that makes just makes it more interesting, I think. Yeah. They yeah. just hate humans, humanoids, because of some sort of historical beef. <laughs> right, or it's one of those things, like, they've been fighting each other for so long that nobody knows why, but we're going to keep going. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I mean, that's more... Uh, real. I mean, they're, if they're... Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, that's actually, like, more realistic than most of the <laughs> reasons you could come up with, I think. Um... Yeah. So yeah, I think um, there's a lot of value in like fleshing out these creatures or characters or groups, um, even if your goal in the end is still like a relatively simple. Like you want a game where your players are going to be exploring like an old castle, and the castle is inhabited by like an orc tribe. Like even if that's all you're aiming for, you want an action game where they're going to fight lots of orcs. And they're going to have, like, you know, wolves and trolls and all this stuff. Um, I think having all these questions sort of, like, answered in your world will help, like, make that way more interesting. You know, you can start adding context. Like, I have a theory that 
a game where the GM knows the reason things exist and happen is always going to feel, even if the players never figure those reasons out or they just, you know, it's not information they have, I think it'll still feel more cohesive and more interesting to the players. Well, I would add to that uh, uh, in a situation where the players kind of go off the beaten path and take a game in a different direction, a game master that has a more fully realized world and, and set of kind of relationships between the, mm -hmm. the non-player characters and the enemies, they're going to be in a better position to deal with those changes because they can just kind of change change up the moving parts that are already there and the relationships that are already there mm -hmm. instead of having to build out systems um, that, that that were never considered. Like, uh, what are the relationships between... How does the relationship between, like, the, the goblins and the wolves work and, and why did they work together? Mm -hmm. that, that would be an interesting question to answer that... I, I've never really worked out myself, but could be really useful. Yeah, and again, that gives you, you know, it's that idea that if even in a fantasy world, if the world is realistic by its own measure, then a lot of those answers or questions become like much easier to answer. Like mm -hmm. if you have like logical causes and effects that you've considered, even if those causes and effects aren't natural, like, it's entirely possible that the orcs are the way they are because they have an evil god that makes them that way. But if you know that, and, you know, now you can start putting that in, like, the context in the world. Like, what if the orcs are the only ones who are like that? How does the goblins and hobgoblins think about them, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or maybe the goblins, like, got away from that god's dominion. You know, like, yeah, there's, like, once you start asking those questions, you just, like, get all this interesting stuff. Yeah, it definitely. And it helps get away from like traditional boring tropes that the orc is just there and yeah. the orc does the things that we've seen in movies and read in books. So you, you really don't have to fill that in yourself. Right. And it becomes, you know, like, <laughs> like one of the things I hate when I'm playing, playing in a game is that, you know, like the characters leave town and they go somewhere and we have a random encounter and there's 20 goblins and they attack we massacre them because we're, you know, adventurous. And, like, you're down to, like, the last three goblins. They keep, like, throwing themselves forward just, like, to die so that they can inflict, like, two more points of damage on some people they don't know. Like, why are they doing this? Like, it just takes right. instantaneously. Because it it's a reminder that you're just playing a stupid game. Yeah, it's the video game thing. There, There is a tool to help your character level up. And yeah, or, they're just going to operate yeah, that way with no self-interest. Right, or like the GM wants to like want you to burn off a few hit points and spells before the next fight. <laughs> you know, so it becomes this like and again, like if that's really your jam, like you like the game as just this like resource cycle, that's fine. Uh, but I feel like that's kind of like under like I used to sound snooty, but I think there's better ways of getting that. Play video games. Yeah, you know, or like <laughs> play a board game, like play Descent or something. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like role-playing games have so much more to offer than just like boiling down to that. Right. And in a lot of games, that doesn't really like make any sense anyway, you know. Like if you're 
trying to do the goblin grind battle in like a game of RuneQuest, like half your party is going to be missing arms <laughs> when, you're, when they get to the dungeon or whatever. Mm. Like some games, it just doesn't. So yeah, like having having a wider perspective on things, I think, is worthwhile. Um, so I kind of have like four uh, points that I think are worth considering when you plop down. You decide that your game is going to have some orcs. Or whatever is the whatever you picked out. We'll just say or I guess say orcs for this conversation, just to like use that as an example. Yeah. Because most and simple most, everyone. Yeah, most games have orcs. If you're playing Glorantha, we're dreadfully sorry, just substitute something else. Trollkin or Tusk Riders or something. Um so I think the first is like a super basic question of like how are these things like organized? Um, like a lot of times games just kinda assume like they're tribal. You know, like they're kind of like dark age, like barbarians or Saxons or something. Uh, but does that have to be the case? Like, couldn't the orcs like? So sure, like maybe you can make them into a religious cult. Maybe they were like you have this really weird tribe of humanoids that were created by this wizard. Mm-hmm. That's immortal. Well, he's been around for thousands of years, living off his dark sorcery, and he's amassed so much power he's made been able to create this new life form that does his bidding and so they're isolated and they're they worship him because they created them like that would be interesting yeah that's kind of like the like the um lord of the rings i suppose uh yeah where the orcs are uh which even like because that's like people tend to like sneer at lord of the rings like oh it's boring um those people can get in the ocean but um, I think the idea of orcs in like third age Middle Earth, because you know, like they're created by Morgoth in like the ancient times, but he's gone. So like some of them like follow the next evil lord, like Sauron, who was like Morgoth's lieutenant, right? Mm-hmm. He's, he's like the nephew of the boss, and so we should follow him. But some of them are clearly just like doing their own thing. You know, like the dudes that are hanging out around in like Moria or in like Goblin Town and the Hobbit are don't really seem like they're I'm sure there's some letter somewhere that specifies that they're actually totally part of the plan, but <laughs> they don't appear to my memory to be like specifically connected to the overall plan. They're just hanging out and like doing orc stuff. Right. So, you know, or you can have um there was an old Swedish fantasy game which had um what the orcs were like they were basically like empire builders. They were, you know, they had this like very austere like warrior culture. Uh, they also all had like Fu Manchu like beards, which was weird. <laughs> um, but they had this like very like sort of like noble warrior thing going on. They all like rode like these crazy lizard animals and stuff. Um, you know, uh, so they're still like they have the characteristics that the player would expect to be like warlike and aggressive and dangerous. Uh, but now you're fighting like a phalanx of these guys, right? As opposed to like hanging out in a cave. Um, yep. But even if they are a tribe, like what does that, like how is that tribe organized? Like like one of the things I was liking, like old old school like D&D monster books, because they would always have the section of like with orcs, like how many of them are like women and like orc children? How many of them are like, you know, like hunters? and Yeah. Like, you know, if they forage, how many of them like go out to gather food. Like, can orcs, like, live off... Like, do they need a lot of food? Then they're going to need a lot of their dudes to go out and look for it, right? Like, can they farm? 
If so, like that's very labor intensive. And farming usually is associated with like a class society where you have like a warrior class and you have like a labor class, right? Um, so like, yeah. you know, even just like basic, I guess it becomes kind of like sociology, like 101. Um, but what is their like structure of like, how do they feed themselves? How do they organize themselves? Is there like an orc police that keeps them in order? On. Um, yeah, yeah. But if they stumble on that village, there's not like kind of uh, an outrider scouting party or or mm. raiding group just to see like how the the orc farmers or the orc uh, kind of college or repository of knowledge would operate. Right. Like, how do they learn things? Are there like veteran orcs that teaches teaches them? Do they have like racial memories? Like, that's all. Yeah. Actually, it would be really fun to do a game where, uh, like, the adventurers show up and they find, like, the orc village and there's, like, you know, pig farmers, like, Warcraft style in the fields. And when they see the adventurers, they, like, you know, scream and run away and, like, call for, like, the orc heroes to, like, go save them. Like, right. it, it becomes, like, the mirror image of, like, when the orcs attack a human village. Totally. <laughs> like, that would be kind of a fun, like, in the right group, that would be a fun, like, send-off, like... <laughs> It's like that skit of like, are we the baddies? Oh yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, like, um, so examining like how are they organized, like even if it, they are still like the tribal barbarians, like tribal barbarians can get kind of complicated. Do they have a council? Is it just like the strongest dude? You know, like even in uh, Lord of the Rings, like the orcs obviously have some sort of social structure. They have leaders, they have like some level of hierarchy that they respect, you know? Like, they even have, like, semblances of friendship, at least up to a point. Well, so, yeah, you've never been a, be able to, like, organize an army to operate, manage, like, a siege uh, of a castle or, or make a credible threat. Yeah, like, if your game is going to involve orc, like, armies, then that presupposes that there must be something that can organize them, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's sort of, and in that case, you need to go back and see, okay, like, how does this, do, is this something that is unusual or is it something that's like, you know, like, do they have their own like legalistic society, even if it, again, it can still be, you know, crude or barbaric, but you know, like your players may never need to know about like how orcs resolve like property disputes. It's probably like grim and violent, but you know, like those things would exist, right? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think, like, the first question is, like, the level of organization. I think, like you said, with armies, that probably also kind of stems out of, like, what role are they going to play? Like, are they, mm -hmm. like, squatting in these old ruins? Well, in that case, that suggests kind of, like, a maybe even nomadic or, like, tribal group. Are they, are we going to have, like, a military campaign where we're going to lead, like, armies against the orcs? Well, in that case, they, they have to have, like, leaders and organizations and resources to, like, make armies out of. You know, especially if they're, like, fantasy armies, which are always, like, stupid big. Right. You know, like, I love when fantasy books are, like, uh, oh, yeah, like, orc army of, like, a uh, 100,000 orcs marched on, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah, that's you're, like, at the top of a, a, a reach, and you can look down into a valley, and it's just yeah, totally like, black. Wall-to-wall -wall orcs. 
Yeah. Right. It's like, you know, like, oh, 50,000 men died this day. Like, the Battle of Hastings are, is suspected of having, like, 10,000 on each side. And that was a big deal at the time. <laughs> you know. So, yeah, if you're going to have an army of, like, 50,000 orcs with all their animals and hangers on and, like, the equivalent of squires, they're definitely going to need, like, some place, even if it's on the corner of the map, where they can, like, farm and cut down trees, right? Right. <laughs> So yeah, like the organization matters. I think the second thing that matters is the, um, like maybe that's kind of part of the same, but like their leadership, like do they have, you know, like if you just say orc leader, like what springs to mind? Oh, let's see. Just like the most, a strong man, like the, the most powerful menacing uh, mm. member of the group. Right, so how does the next orc who uh, thinks he can do a pretty good job of that, how does he become the big guy? And they just, I, the classical way, I know people keep it simple. Like, they just challenge each other and kill each other because they're evil. Sure, so, which, um, but then um, there's, you know, like real life historical cultures where like leadership by challenge happened that we don't consider evil, right? Right. Um. So what if there's, like, ritualistic methods for it? You know, like, what if um, they might recognize that while they're at war, um, unless there's, like, a big defeat, they can't. You can't challenge for leadership. If you do, then the rest of the tribe will just, like, massacre you. Mm. Uh, so now you have a story hook, right? Like, the adventurers lead an army, they defeat the orcs, and they've kind of figured out, like, their commander. He's, like, an old orc, and he's kind of past it. He's got... You know, he doesn't have any good ideas anymore. So he just let his troops like into a massacre. So now the uh, surviving orcs like retreat to the mountains, and the the old leader gets challenged because he led them into a disaster. And now they have this like power hungry new guy with new ideas, like that. You know, like you could tie a couple of interesting sessions to that. Now suddenly, like the orcs are like coming out of the the forest and they're digging under the walls and stuff because he's a shrewd guy and he wants like new a new way to like defeat the humans. Sure. Or you know, he makes uh, reaches out to like the troglodytes or other uh, mm -hmm. like evil or hostile humanoid tribes in the area, and they make a doubles the size of their military force to finally yeah. take revenge on the. We'll give you all the caves underneath the ground if uh, you help us defeat the city, right? Or whatever, right. like yeah, you know. So. Yeah, what are the leaders like? Um, again, um, they don't have to be super complex. They don't have to be like super, you know, like postmodern. They can still be like warlike barbaric vassals. But they got to where they are, you know, through some sort of method, right? And they have the, again, if they're leading like armies of thousands, then they have some sort of method. Do they have like officers like in a military? Do they have like trusted henchmen? Do they have magical control? Right. Uh, well, one thing that could be interesting is if you had uh, like an orc leader that had a high level of charisma. Mm -hmm. So he's actually not physically strong, but he's crafty and he has like a, a group of henchmen or officers and they do the dirty work for him. That would be really cool. Like the orc prophet or something. Yeah. You know, yeah, that would be super cool. Or he's like the one orc. Like in a lot of settings, orcs can't use magic. What if he's the one guy who can? For sure. There's like an oracle that can tell the future to an extent. 
Yeah, <laughs> but he always tells it like a really like a brutal warlike future. That's why they keep like invading everyone. <laughs> but yeah, like the, so the leader matters, right? Like he's like fantasy tends to in history. There's this concept like uh, big man history or great man history that history revolves mm-hmm. around like specific important people who do and say things. And fantasy right. tends, like super like old fashioned often, so that tends to like rely a lot on that, right? Um, yeah. If that's how your world works, then yeah, like the leaders of these groups does matter a lot because um, their decisions will shape like how this whole like species plays out. Like, what's the the orc chief like or the lizard man king? Like, what does he want, and how does he want it? Like, what's he willing to do? Mm-hmm. And what happens when you get a, a leader in one of these groups who wants to break with uh, tradition? What if there's a goblin leader? who decides that, you know what, we should try and make an alliance with the dwarves and gank all the orcs instead. (laughs) You have something interesting. Like, now you can do the classic, like, two sides that distrust each other coming together, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Um, So, yeah. um, Leadership matters a lot uh, because they are a... I mean, the leaders are a a personification of... Um, well, they're they're like the kind of like the the agents of of action, mm-hmm. like they make the statements and define the events and give them a face. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Um, and they also like how many other than like the dudes you like fight. How many quote enemy NPCs are you going to interact with? Well, probably not that many, or even know of. Well, the orc chief and maybe his like main wizard. And maybe, like, their war, war commander that, like, you fight against all the time. So you get, what, like, two or three NPCs to, like, add character? Yeah, you could create rivalries where you engage in combat, but it's non-lethal. Like, they find a way to get out of it mm-hmm. uh, through magic or some other method. Or, just... or he's just, like, you know, like, the war chief is, like, he's an orc, so he doesn't really have, like, conceptions of, like, honor, right? So he just... Like, if the battle goes against him, he just ditches out. Let's just uh, troops get mown down. Yeah. So he's coming back with, like, different armies. Uh, and maybe over time, like, you can exploit the fact that <laughs> at some point, these guys are going to have, like, really poor morale, right? Sure. You know, but yeah, like, you <laughs> use the leadership to add character, because that is often, like, when you're creating a game, right, like, the only people who really exist are the ones you write down. Yep. You know, like, the shopkeep, he didn't exist until you said he did. You know, like, we know logically there's a shopkeep in the store, but, you know, like, it's a, <laughs> we're creating this, like, fake reality, right? So, yeah, if you only have, like, one face to put on the orcs, then take a moment to think about what that face is like and what, um, how it is. Well, inter- otherwise, they're just a mechanism, mm-hmm. like you were saying earlier. It's just, like, a, a mechanism for conflict, that allows us to use our dice and, and see see if our guys were able to prevail and level up stats and all that business. <laughs> right. And in that case, there's probably something more interesting in the monster book you could use. But, <laughs> I mean, there there's nothing wrong with playing, like, a straight-ahead, tactically-based uh, mm-hmm. dungeon crawl where you're just there to get the MacGuffin or the loot. Yeah, like, like if that's... If that's what is fun for your group, then, like, indulge that. But even then, I would argue, like, 
put a little more, you know, even if you use these things to just set up like more tactical challenges, like we talked about like goblins fighting in a certain way, like you can still get benefit out of it, even if the end point is just like sword fodder. Mm. You want it to be interesting sword fodder, right? Sure. You know, so even then, I think a lot of these things are kind of applicable. Uh, but yeah, you know, like, don't let us like shame you out of like your dungeon nerds game that you're playing. Like, if you, your people are having fun and everyone is excited to like go play more of it, then obviously you got you figured out whatever your group wants. Yep. So exactly. Uh, that's a pretty uplifting uh, <laughs> thing to uh, to end on. So, do we want to talk about some uh, some nerd stuff we've been up to or want to recommend? Oh, let's see. I, I would recommend this book called uh, Perdido Street Station. Okay. And it's just like, uh, really, it's based around this city that's kind of modeled off uh, London, England. Uh huh. And it's very dynamic, full of all sorts of wild creatures. Um, the government's corrupt, and uh, everyone's kind of scrambling. So like I'm gonna urban fantasy kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah, yep. I'm gonna recommend something uh, pretty old, um, and this is one of those recommendations that like half the audience is already well familiar with, and the other half isn't, and it'll blow their mind. But that is the venerable Michael Moorcock. Um, he's the author of approximately, at last count, like 10 million fantasy novels, and nine million of them are all set in the same sort of bizarre drug-fueled continuity. Right. Um, most famous for the Elric series of novels, which um, are kind of written to be like the opposite of Conan the Barbarian in every possible way. Um, they're very much old-school sword and sorcery, um, with lots of a wild, bizarre creatures and interesting characters and demons and crazy things happening. Um, I mean, the series ends with like the literal end of the world, and that's not the wildest thing you will have read by the time you get there. Right. Um, and it's interesting because there are very few sort of established races of non-human characters. Like almost everyone you meet is a human or some sort of like crazy monster. Uh, but there's a few, and they end up being really unique and interesting uh, because they are not very common, uh, and they have very sort of noticeable, especially like the main. The main species that the main character belongs to, um, which are they're essentially evil elves, like dark elves, uh, but they're not called that. Um, but because they're so rare and so unique, it ends up having like an interesting effect. Um, like a lot of fantasy tends to be very sort of cosmopolitan, where there's like strange, intelligent creatures everywhere. It's like the Star Trek effect, yep. or like Star Wars, where you, you see a shot from a town and there's like you know forty different like intelligent species living there. Uh, and that's not bad, um, but I think you get an interesting effect when you have a world where there's only two, for example. Um, mm. So, and other than that, like, they're just, like, a wild, bizarre um, sword and sorcery novels with, like, crazy things that you could never even imagine. Um, and they're all kind of connected. Almost all the characters that he writes are essentially, like, incarnations of the same person uh, called the Eternal Warrior. Um, so you'll get this weird feeling if you read a bunch of them, uh, where you'll see events that you have already seen, but you're seeing them like from a different perspective. And sometimes these people who are all the same person end up like meeting up and like adventuring together, and that yeah. shows up in like different books from the different perspectives and where they were in their own quests and things at the time. It's like a much 
darker, more violent uh, Doctor Who. Yeah, that's exactly uh, the right thing. He's a British author, too, originally, so that makes sense. But yeah, it's like Doctor Who, if it was like both endlessly nihilistic, but also like strangely humanist. Um, <laughs> it's interesting. Um, he's a wild guy. Uh, he's well worth reading. Some people get... Uh, a lot of his older books have this kind of kind of clipped style, like he's kind of terse with words, although he is very descriptive. His later, more modern material tends to be more, a little more flowery and a little heavier on the prose, but go look up, yeah, go look up like any of this stuff. If in doubt, start with the Elric cycle, reach like the original chain of books, and then kind of go from there if you get the, the bug for it. Yep, I agree 100%. All right. Well, I think that wraps things up. So uh, thanks again for checking in with us and have a great week, everyone. Yeah, stay safe. Have a great week and we will see you. We won't, but we will listen to each other uh, next week.